0: May 2015, Detroit activist and expat in Ghana, Mamalina Diop, 75, is murdered alongside her sister in their close-knit African-American community. Suspicion is cast on locals they had argued with over land ownership, but were they really the killers? Sources for this episode include the Detroit Free Press, City FM Online, root.com, MyJoyOnline.com and PeaceFMOnline.com. Hi guys, welcome back to episode 60 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or been murdered abroad. I'm kind of half laughing because this is the third time I'm recording this introduction. <laughs> The first time, Yoko was munching really loudly in the background and whining. The second time I just recorded it, my neighbors walked past my door screaming. Um, So let's try this again. (laughs) So, I'm going to get straight into it um, because I don't have any housekeeping to go through. So, this is a Patreon location request for patron Wendy. It's been quite a while since she requested it. So, Wendy, I have got around to it. Now, Wendy gave me two options. You know, when I say when you become a patron, you get to choose a location for an upcoming episode. And Wendy gave me two options because she thought maybe I wouldn't be able to find one the first option, which has happened before. But I really wanted to try to get her first option, which was Ghana, because it is a country that really interests me. And through researching this, it really interests me. Like I, I'm really like, I want to go there. It's, it's crazy. I haven't had this reaction to a place pretty much for the whole time. um, I've been doing this podcast and it just really enchanted me and entranced me. And I watched quite a lot of um documentaries early this morning when I got up um about Ghana, and it just really something about it really spoke to me. All I knew before doing Ghana was that my godmother, she's a pretty cool older woman. she's she's pretty old. she's like eighty something, but um her daughter, when she was in her, Late teens, early twenties, went to Ghana, and on a kind of university trip or a volunteering trip, and she brought home a very um, Ghanaian, I guess that's how you say it, man. And luckily, my my godmother's a pretty cool woman, so it didn't really surprise her, or she doesn't really care. Um, if it had been me, and my grandfather was still alive, uh, I don't know, but. They are still together to this day and they had a beautiful, um, beautiful children. One of them I used to hang out with when I was a little girl and she was like a perfect little doll. So that's really all I knew about Ghana and I knew the capital. That was it. From occasionally booking a flight there or within Africa when I worked in a travel agency back when those were things. So I decided to kind of start looking because I didn't have anyone on my big list of hundreds of cases that... Happened in Ghana. So, luckily, I stumbled across the case of Jeanette Salters, who later changed her name to Mamalina Diop. And I was able to piece together her story with many issues. It's taken me a couple of days to kind of figure out what the real story is because there was next to no press in the US, which will surprise you when I get into her accomplishments. Um, You would think that they would have some sort of interests beyond you know, uh, just a short, this is what happened in the Detroit Free Press, but at least they did that. Ghana did most of the coverage on this. They have, as I'll get into, a really good protection of the media. So they're not censored in really any way, which really surprised me. Um, so that was really the only case I could come across. And so I really wanted to do Mammalina's story, who I'll refer to as Jeanette at the start, and then I'll get get—I'll start calling her Mammalina, but I'll explain it. But one of the problems is Jeanette, her sister, who was killed alongside her, and the killer of them, because this is a solved case, all of them are referred to by two different names according to which coverage you're looking at. And that, that was really confusing to me. <laughs> but it's Ghana, and it works differently, and people have different names I'll kind of get into it. But I didn't realize that this is the first African case I'm doing since John Brisker in Uganda, I'm pretty sure. I scrolled back through and it seems to be, and I really didn't think that was the case. I thought I'd done one since. And that was way back like episode 29. So that really pissed me off that I'd not done one because I have quite a lot on my list. Um, And if you haven't listened to the John Brisker case, make sure to go back at some point and listen to it because that's actually my favorite case I've done so far. I think it's the most maybe one of the most interesting. Um, people are really fascinated by it when they hear about it. And a lot of those things about John Briska really reminded me of Jeanette slash Mamalina um, and how they kind of found their roots in Africa. So I also wanted to thank Wendy quickly because I forced myself to watch um, an episode of, um, is it No Reservations?, um, with Anthony Bourdain, I prefer parts unknown. Since he died over two years ago, I haven't been able to watch an episode of any of his shows and I've seen all of them. Um, but I forced myself to cause I put in, I'm pretty sure he'd been to Ghana. So I put in Anthony Bourdain, Ghana, and it came up with an episode of no reservations. Um, him going to Ghana and it was quite early on in his career and I I just loved his coverage of it as I do with every place. Um, I didn't like No Reservations as much as Parts Unknown because it was more about food, No Reservations and as much as I agree with him that that really says a lot about a culture and I really do believe that, I loved Parts Unknown because he had more in-depth conversations about the history of places and things like that. So, in a way, that's kind of what I maybe has inspired me to bring this podcast to you. Um, but I loved kind of watching him again. It, it, it really hurts. I, it's so funny. Like, it doesn't affect me that much when celebrities die. Like, shit happens and it never really surprises me because how's it going to surprise you that Amy Winehouse died? I don't know how that's a surprise. But it wasn't a surprise to me when he died because I'd seen the show and I kind of knew what kind of person he was. Um, but it made me sad to like hear his voice again because he's like such an inspiration and he left such an impact and everywhere he went, people loved him. And, um, you know, sometimes people forget that and I think he forgot that, you know? Um, so yeah, with all that being said, let's get into the case of Mamalina Diop and Nazinga Jana. Also, before I get into this, Okay, so I just want to say that the details of this aren't going to be as detailed as other ones, Um, small details, because there's so little coverage of this. And the same article has kind of been repeated a million times all across the world. So there was only, you know, three articles really for me to go off that have been in the press. Um, And I also just want to say that when I normally put these on the episode page on the website or on Instagram, I'm not going to have many for this one because sadly, there's one picture of Jeanette, Mamelina, and there's none of her sister out there. And I've looked everywhere. Um, even in the Detroit Free Press article, I don't know if it's because of family privacy, they didn't release them, I'm not sure. There was one picture, and that's all I've got, and that's of Mamelina. And, you know, that makes me really, really sad. So, yeah, if you happen to come across them, let me know. But, So, I'm going to start by calling her um, what her name was. It was Jeanette Salters. And she was born in Cleveland. I don't have her address, but doing the math, I'm guessing she was born around 1940. So, if she was alive today, she'd be 80. She'd be 80. So, she was born in Cleveland, Ohio, around 1940. And her birth name was Jeanette Salters. Um, She's an African American woman. I've got one picture of her and it's really zoomed up. So I can't really kind of get a vibe for her. But from everything that people describe her as, she sounds like an incredible woman who really wanted to give her last years, giving to other people. Um, So when she was quite young, she moved from Cleveland to Detroit, uh, Michigan, which is a very kind of rough city, as you would know. And she moved there as a young woman. And in her adolescence and early adulthood, Jeanette became very involved in radical politics, as they put it, Um, different social movements, women's movements, feminist movements, African-American movements. Now, I don't know much about her ex-husband. I presume she was married or she had a partner. Um, I'm guessing back at that time she was married I have to say that because she has a daughter who has been mentioned in a couple of articles, Cheryl, a son, Greg, and grandchildren. I don't know if there's some children that haven't been interviewed. I'm not sure. Um, and she had two sisters, I believe. One of them was killed alongside her, Nizanga. Um, they refer to her in most articles as Nizanga Jana. She had another sister who is later quoted. Um, now, Nizanga So Jeanette was around 75. Nazanga, a couple of sources say she's 60, but most say she's 69, and I'm pretty sure she was 69. And it's really sad that there's not a picture out there of her. Um, In 1973, Jeanette set up the Detroit chapter of the National Black Feminist Organization. This no longer exists today, um, but it was quite a big thing back then. And alongside doing that work, she was a social worker and a counsellor, and she clearly played a very important role in her community in Detroit. Now, later on, I guess after she'd raised her children, um, doing the maths, it would have been when she was in her fifties. Um, she decided to kind of find her origins to find her roots. And that very much reminded me of John Brisker, because if you've listened to the John Brisker case, he had been going over to Africa. I guess most of us assume it's for nefarious things. I don't think John, the end game was finding his oranges, oranges, (laughs) oranges, origins. Sorry guys. Um, he was saying that he wanted to find his roots and a couple of his friends had said that he had come back wearing, um, I can't remember what the term is, it was in my script for that episode, just African dress. Um, he had gone to Uganda, which I guess was the land of his forefathers. But apparently Jeanette went to all over West Africa, um, which if you look at a map, um, I'm going to kind of explain Ghana in a little bit, but West Africa has got a very troubled history. A lot of the countries in there, including the Ivory Coast and Sierra Leone. I'm sure that you at least have a little bit of an understanding of that. You've probably seen Blood Diamond or something like that. Um, so in the end, she actually ended up settling in Ghana and she, I guess she chose this. It doesn't really say it, but from what I understand, Ghana has a very interesting approach to asking people to move there. They've actually... They've actually for a number of decades reached out to African-Americans because Ghana was where a lot of slaves initially were brought out to the Americas from. Um, They had this really fascinating thing where they were asking them to come back. Um, and a lot of West African places were doing that at the time. Um, so that's why Jeanette went and did that and took this opportunity because they were setting up these African-American communities in Ghana to move there with her sister Nizanga. Now she was involved in kind of, again, what she had been doing back home, um, working alongside the community, helping people, um, and, her daughter, Cheryl, said that she was really into health, into organic food, natural herbs, um, and I guess Ghana is a really good place to get into that. Now, I don't have LinkedIn anymore, but when I searched it, it, it seems that her LinkedIn is still up. Um, and, yeah, I find that that's kind of really sad to me. Um, and I knew it was her because it says that she loves natural herbs and organic things. Her daughter Cheryl said, quote, my mother was very articulate, very into herbs and holistic medicine, eating natural, unquote. And that kind of puts her ahead of her time, which is really cool. Now, once she settled in Ghana, um, she really fell in love with it. As I said, she'd moved there. A lot of Detroit African-Americans had actually gone to Ghana to, quote, reclaim their ancestral roots during a revival of black nationalist movements, unquote. And she absolutely fell in love with Ghana, so much so that she embraced her new, I think it's Ghanaian. I've always said Ghanaian. I think it's Ghanaian, according to Anthony Bourdain. Um, She took on her Ghanaian name, Mamalina Diop, which from now on, I will describe Jeanette as Mamalina Diop. Got it? So, she actually ended up building a life there with her sister for 20 years before she was murdered in such a cruel fashion. Her sister, Nazanga, who I know nothing about and there's nothing out there about her, moved with her to Ghana. And she actually took it so far, uh, Mamalina, that she actually attained dual citizenship, which is a pretty massive step because a lot of people end up being expats for their whole life and, you know, never take the steps. So it shows that she was really, you know, serious about it. Now, this is where I'm going to get into a little bit or a lot about Ghana. Now, as I like to do, I'm going to start this episode with the excerpt and the very brief way that Lonely Planet, (laughs) who glosses over kind of the reality of things, um, describes Ghana. I mean, they do get a lot of it right, but it's a very kind of concise way of putting it. Quote, hailed as West Africa's golden child, Ghana deserves its place in the sun. One of Africa's great success stories, the country is reaping the benefits of a stable democracy in the form of fast-paced development. And it shows Ghana is suffused with the most incredible energy, West Africa, and was once called the Go- the Gold Coast, unquote. Now, the Gold Coast here in Australia is a really tacky, like touristy place. (laughs) So that's the first thing I thought of. And it is right. um, Watching all the footage, it's this constant noise and this hum and this energy that you really can't describe that exists in really developing places. Uh, You get more so that real kind of salt of the earth vibe. Now, Ghana borders Burkina Faso to the north, which is one of, if not the poorest country in Africa, next to Burundi, I believe. Togo is to the east of it. And the Côte d'Ivoire, which is the Ivory Coast, is to the west of it, which is chronically one of pretty much the places that you do not go um, in Africa, and that's to the west of Ghana. The language in Ghana, the official language is English, but there are about 10 other recognised local languages. Now, the population is 30 million, and I looked up a graph of what it was once because it is one of the fastest growing Populations in the world. Um, Bill Gates wants to kill us all. So here's an example of why Bill Gates wants to kill us all. In 1950, only 70 years ago, the population of Ghana was 5 million and it is now 30 million. Now, when I this week have looked up why Bill Gates wants to kill us all, I've realized that if you believe what he says, it's because they want to lower infant mortality. So people in Africa, for instance, um, have con- have a lot of children. They really churn them out because they don't expect most of them to survive through childhood and they need them to kind of help them um, to work and, you know, to support the family. So they're kind of working on improving their health and lowering the infant mortality rate so that they live longer so they're not having constant children. And I think Ghana is an example of that. Um, I don't know, maybe he wants to kill us all, but that's the way he described it. So the area of Ghana is around 238,500 square kilometers. And the capital is, I used to say it Accra and I've always said it, but I watched a really good YouTube with a local woman who was very fun showing people around Accra. And she said it was Accra. And she said it totally differently. So I'm not entirely sure. So I apologize if I say it wrong. Accra is home to almost 3 million of the 30 million population and then I can't remember what the name of it is but there is another city um, in Ghana, a major city that has about 2 million and then they're kind of dotted around the coastlines and the villages. So the religion in Ghana is predominantly Christian and the climate is warm and because of where it's located it's not boiling hot but it never gets cold. I think it's around twenty five Celsius, kind of the average yearly, or twenty-eight. Now the currency of Ghana, which I had to kind of figure out to figure out how much a beer is and a house is, um, is the Ghanaian CD. And on episode fifty eight, before I deleted it, I decided to start doing a new segment, How much is a beer in a country? to kind of give you an idea because when I've traveled, I've always thought I've always loved trying local beers and I'm always surprised by (laughs) the cost of them, Um, like compare Vietnam to the Netherlands. Um, And when I was in Vietnam, I think it was 50 cents for a Saigon beer, which is a local beer. So a beer in Ghana is actually about one US dollar, which is way more than I thought it would be. And because it is one of the most rapidly growing countries in Africa, I guess that makes sense. The life expectancy in Ghana um, is 63 years old, which, yes, that sounds very surprising, but in 1940, it was around 45. So they have come a long way. The biggest killer in Ghana is malaria, which I've posted on my Instagram about. It's pretty much a chronic thing um, around the world. That is one of the biggest killers in developing countries. There's poor public sanitation, um, high infant mortality rates, um, malnutrition, deadly diseases like malaria and TB and things like that. So that's kind of why, but at the rate it's growing, if 1940, the life expectancy was in your forties and now it's 63, that's, that's really, really good. And that's actually a lot higher than parts of Southeast Asia. In 2011, um, around 1,087,000 tourists visited Ghana, and they came from all over, including North America, South America, um, Australia, Europe. So it is becoming more and more of a tourist destination. And I've heard a couple of people on my travels who have actually gone to Ghana. So it's not totally out there. Now, if you're interested in what the name Ghana means, it means warrior king. So (laughs) that's pretty cool. Now, the landscape in Ghana is very varied and if you look at pictures of it, it is incredible. There are beaches that are reminiscent of idyllic parts of Southeast Asia. You would think it was somewhere out of the Philippines or Thailand. There's these lush national forests and national parks that are home to wild elephants, one that Anthony Bourdain on the episode goes to. They've just got 800 wild elephants wandering around. It's, it's amazing. Um, there's bustling cities like Accra with bumper-to-bumper traffic and this constant hum in the background and, you know, music and drumming and people laughing. Um, there's remote villages that really retain a lot of that rich Ghanaian culture. There's southern kingdoms. One of them's called Ashanti, just in case that interests you, <laughs> um, where they do large-scale mining of precious metals, including diamonds um, there's these rainforests with waterfalls and there's savannas and deserts that are home to eagles and lions. And one of the most popular places for tourists to go when they arrive in Ghana is called the Cape Coast, which is pre- spectacular. Um, it truly is. 35% of Ghana's land mass is desert and 35% is forest and 30% is savannah. And just kind of on the Bourdain episode, he went to markets in Accra. Um, and when I kind of described Accra, I found an episode where Conan O'Brien went to Accra randomly. I did watch it. I don't think he's funny, but he's kind of the one I can tolerate out of all of them, which is, you know, I can't tolerate them. Um, these markets are incredible. And they really reminded me of my time in Cambodia. And it was really cool. Like they've got these massive markets in the city and they have market wenches as Bourdain described it. And they're women who, if there's a dispute about pricing, they come and sort the shit out. So it's like a very matriarchal society. And every kind of person who was involved in helping him and like in the episode was a woman. Um, Now, if you're wondering about food in Ghana, I watched the whole episode, so I can say that fish and fishing is pretty much the central part of a Ghanaian diet. And in the episode when Anthony Bourdain went to, he went to this very remote village, they pretty much had the entire population of the village come out on the beach and this happens like every day. Um, a group of eight men go out into the sea with these massive nets. They get so much fish and lobster and things like that that they have to drag it in. And the 20 people, the whole population of the village on the beach helps drag this net in. And they they were basically saying, the guy who was explaining it to Anthony Bourdain was saying, everyone gets involved because this is how people get fed and you have to be part of a community here to survive. And, yeah, I just found it, I understood why Mamalina slash Jeanette ended up there. Now, way back when, Ghana was a major empire and it was actually a major empire from about the 11th century, I think, to the 13th century. The Portuguese initially discovered Ghana in 1470 And then somehow the British came along between everyone else. The British colonised it and they began their rule of Ghana in 1820. Ghana was a British territory until it gained its independence in 1957. But today it is still a Commonwealth country, much like Australia is. So we kind of have these ties as Commonwealth countries. Now, Ghana was, as I said, also where many slaves were taken from, something that plays into Jeanette Salter's story of trying to find her roots in West Africa. And as I've said on so many episodes, after independence, it seems, it seems time for bad dudes to seize power when there's kind of a void in power. And Ghana had that as well. They had a number of military coups. There was a major one in 1981. But then in 1992, they were given a new constitution um, and basically became a democratic republic where people were able to vote. Um, So to this day, Ghana continues to have elections, whatever that's worth. So since then, Ghana has been a stable country and really one of the jewels in the crown of West Africa. It's kind of incredible that it shares a border with somewhere like the Ivory Coast, which no one in their right mind would go traveling to unless you had a death wish. It is a it has a very low crime rate, um, comparable to maybe most U.S. cities, um, and definitely not comparable to the rest of West Africa. Economically, Ghana is one of the most kind of rapidly growing economies in West Africa it has the highest GDP in West Africa and this is primarily because of the natural resources that Ghana produces they are the second largest african producer of gold the first one being south africa so in top of gold there's oil diamonds iron and they are one of the largest producers of cocoa in the world something that i'm actually writing a thing right now for for one of my clients so There is this thing called Ghana Vision 2020 and this is basically a plan by the Ghana government to make Ghana the first African country to become a developed country (laughs) Um, and this is supposed to happen between this year and 2029. I presume this year put them back a bit. Um, There is pretty low unemployment especially in the cities such as Accra and from what I could see most people have pretty good kind of literacy and they have a really good education system. They actually got computers before we got computers in Australia in (laughs) schools. Now, the real estate market, which plays into Jeanette Salter's story, Mamalina and her sister, is very competitive. And for the first time ever, Ghanaians have been able to financially afford homes. Now, if you're wondering how much a house is in Ghana, now, if you want to buy one kind of in... Kumasi, which is the second biggest city in Ghana, um, or Accra, you're looking at around 60000 US dollars, <laughs> which is pretty incredible. And I expected it to be around that because long story short, I knew a guy in England um, who had married a Botswanan woman for a very brief period of time, and he'd bought a house over there. And it was this like sprawling estate, and it was $50,000. So <laughs> he didn't end up with it, just letting you know. But if you can go kind of out to villages in Ghana or down to the coastline, you can get one for around $40,000. And I looked up if foreigners can buy houses because in Thailand, for instance, you it's very hard um, to buy a business or a house. You need a very good solicitor um, or attorney, as you guys in America say it. But yeah, you can... They can actually buy houses, and it does mean something. Like in Thailand, if you're married to a Thai woman and you're a man, um, I'm saying that because only men in Thailand can be married to women. Um, if you split up, that business belongs to her family. So it's it's crazy that Ghana is ahead of a country that is more of a tourist hotspot and is getting more expats. Now, different kinds of land there are a number of different kinds of land which I'll get into kind of in Jeanette's story um, because I looked this up and it kind of helped me understand a little bit more about what her and her sister were up against. Um, There's a number of different types of land that you can buy that cannot be privately owned. And by understanding this and looking this up, I kind of began to understand why what happened to Jeanette happened, not that there was any reason behind it um, except this person being a piece of shit. Um, but yeah, so Ghana is one of the apparently least corrupt countries in West Africa and in Africa um, in terms of public sect- sector corruption. And one of the things that really was refreshing to me was that the media in Ghana are some of the most free media in Asia they have in Africa sorry they have a constitution um, of Ghana which guarantees freedom of the press um, and media independence separate from the government and I don't know I thought we had that in Australia seemingly not Um, so if you're interested in in sport sorry I can't talk today Football is one of the most popular sports in um, Ghana. We would call it soccer. Um, But Ghana has won 57 medals at the Commonwealth Games, um, including 15 gold because we take part in the Commonwealth Games, Commonwealth countries. They haven't had a great run with the Olympics. Um, I believe they haven't won a medal since 1992, um, which I guess is understandable because they probably wouldn't have the the kind of money push towards Olympians and things like that, I'm thinking of, you know, cool runnings. Um, fun fact, that was the first ever movie I saw at the movies in case you guys were wondering. But the sports that they excel at at the Commonwealth Games and the Olympics are athletics and boxing. Ghana even has a space program, which astounded me <laughs> because even we don't hear. Um, now, host. Ghana is a very popular place to go for medical tourism, which is one of those phrases that makes me cringe. Um, When I think of medical tourism, I think of women getting boob jobs in Turkey and then dying on the table. Um, I read about them all the time. Ghana is one of these places because they've got kind of socialised healthcare, one of the few good things about socialism. Um, There's 200 hospitals in Ghana. They have a very good ratio of doctors and nurses to patients. And it's becoming this medical tourism destination, which concerns me when people have to leave their own countries to get something done at a discount rate. I wouldn't even get my teeth done in Thailand. That's how seriously I take it. Um, Now, Ghanaian fashion is really cool. And if you look at it, it's bright. It's a lot of it is hand woven. Um, In the episode of No Reservations, Anthony Bourdain went to this village where they were weaving fabric which you see in Thailand as well and I've seen them do it in Chiang Mai Um, they were weaving fabric and how intricate it is and how talented they are to do it on this loom at this incredible pace and then you can buy that kind of stuff at all of these markets it's so kind of eye-catching and unique that Burberry which is a British fashion house actually made a collection at one point a few years ago based on Ghanaian styles and Lastly, in terms of Ghana, just random trivia, they have a budding and thriving film industry, which really surprised me. It's incredibly popular and they also have a kind of tandem tag team film industry with Nigeria, which they call Nollywood, which I love. Now, Crime in Ghana. Crime in Ghana is relatively on the low side. Um, It's on par with any of the safer places I've covered on this podcast it is the safest part of West Africa, but, you know, as with anywhere, even if you're just going up the shop in your hometown, there are things to be aware of, including petty crime and things like that. Um, Things like getting registered taxis and like in other parts of the world, negotiating for a rate before you get in the taxi will save a lot of issues. Ghana has a murder rate of around 1.68 per 100,000 population, um, and that was as of 2011, which is, a, which is a low rate. Now, if you are gay or LGBTQI, um, Ghana is not the place to go on a holiday. According to World Nomads, quote, homosexuality has been illegal in Ghana since the 1800s with offences attracting a minimum sentence of 10 years in prison. LGBTQ people are heavily discriminated against and violence towards the, towards the LGBTQ community does occur. The local gay party scene is mostly underground and there have been reports of local straight men scamming or blackmailing unsuspecting gay travellers in nightclubs and bars, unquote. So that's very similar to nearby Uganda which we've covered before where it is, you know, um, criminalized to be gay. So if you're going there they say, like with most of these places that are quite reserved, um, women should wear covered clothes and don't, even if you're a man and a woman partake in public displays of affection, don't do that any of these places. And that goes for Dubai and things like that. Um, I'd never go to Dubai. One day I'll do an episode on it. I have someone I want to interview. Um, I'm just going off on a tangent, but there's so many things about Dubai that people don't know. <laughs> it's illegal to wear military style or cam- camo clothing. Um, <laughs> it is a unique rule to Ghana because there's many rebel groups kind of in that part of West Africa that wear that. And um, If you're not in that, it is illegal to wear that. You don't want to identify as one of them by accident. Um, Also, with the diamond trade. So, Ghana, as with the rest of West Africa, is a diamond mining hotspot. And when you're in these cities, like you can see in movies like Blood Diamond, you are constantly approached by people trying to sell you diamonds. And a lot of the deals are too good to be true, and that's because they are. Um, Now, while Ghana does have laws when it comes to um, conflict-free diamonds, blood diamonds do find their way onto markets. Um, So the general rule of thumb is don't buy diamonds there. Um, Now, one of the really sad things, which is kind of prevalent in this part of the world and frankly pisses me off, massively is that 4% of women in Ghana have undergone female genital mutilation, which is FGM. The practice is illegal in the country, but as you probably know, if you know anything about that, that doesn't stop these, you know, parents or grandparents or fathers, mothers, pieces of shit from doing this. Um, don't you think the, shouldn't the penalty be we do the same back? Isn't it an eye for an eye or is that just me? Um, Ghana is also the birth country of one of the world's most famous anti-female genital mutilation campaigners. Um, Her name is Efua Dorkanu. So with that being said, that's just a very brief glimpse into Ghana. I'm going to play you a little bit of Ghanaian music because Ghanaian music is very interesting. They've got this thing called hip life, which is kind of a combination of Kind of hip hop and local drumming. It is unique to Ghana. Um, I'm gonna play you some traditional Ghanaian music now. Hello, yeah. that brings us back to Mama Lena and her sister Nazanga. And they had been living in Ghana for around 20 years. Her daughter Cheryl said, quote, she loved that place. She loved Africa. The people were nice, unquote. And that's something that Anthony Bourdain said um, that matched up. He said the people are nice and the food is good. Um, And that seems to be my takeaway as well from a distance. Now, she had managed to move there because there is this african-american kind of reintegration that you're able to take up if you're able to prove um that you're you know came from africa um and they regularly while living in ghana traveled back and forth and mamalina to detroit to visit family the last time that they were in detroit was around 2013 for a funeral Um, but that brings us to may 2015. The two women were living together. Um, Now, this can be really hard for me. They were living in a small community for about 18 years. This falls in the, it's Akwa Mufi um, community in the Asua Gayaman district of the eastern region. Now, I looked up what Akwa Mufi is and Wikipedia said, quote, Aquamufi is the state and seat capital of the Aquama state or kingdom. It is located along the Akwapim Togo Range, the Volta River, and in the eastern region. It is the town where the Paramount Chief, Odenneho Kwafo Akoto III, and Queen Nana Afrikoma II, reside and administer their operations. The majority of the divisional chiefs and sub-chiefs also reside in Aquamufi. Akwama state or kingdom consists of 36 towns of which Akwamufi is the capital. So I know that's confusing. So there are chiefs from what I can tell designated to each kind of state or kingdom of Ghana um, that oversee it. And they were living in one of these towns. Now, Mamalina and Nizanga were living in an African American community. So basically, this African American community had been able to acquire citizenship there. There is like a fast-tracked way that you can do it, which I'll go through at the end in case you're looking to move to Ghana. And they'd acquired a really big parcel of land in Aquamufi and settled on it. And this was a gated community. Um, From what I can find, Later on, after this, they did a assessment of the security there. And there were two police officers at the main entrance, but the problem was you could get into the community a number of other different ways. So, it's really just a moot point having the two police officers there. Now, these African-Americans um, had named this community, including Mamalina and her sister, Ferranka. Um And one Ghanaian news source that I could find, because I was wondering how they made a living unless they just had money that they were living off there. But I guess over 20 years, you'd have to make some money. They said that the two women made a living in batik and tie dye. Now I looked up what batik is, and it is, quote, an Indonesian technique of wax resistant dyeing applied to whole cloth, unquote. So that's how they were making their living. Now, a number of strange things had been going on for Mamelina and Nzanga, in for quite a while before they were murdered. Um, they had had to contact the police a number of times due to issues within, you know, their outside the community they were living in, outside of the African American community. Um, later on, the sister of Mamelina and Nzanga, who was living back in America, um, said. Really pointed the finger at the police in the area and said that the murders totally could have been prevented um, if the police had got involved. She said, "quote We went there on numerous occasions to report threats and misbehavior on the property, and when the minister sent two of the accused men to occupy our building, we asked the police to come and assist us in getting them out, and they said they wouldn't do it." So basically these men who were outside of this community were coming in, having issues with the fact that Mamelina and Nazanga were living there. It's very complex to me and I couldn't... They didn't go into complete detail um, as to what it was. But basically there was a group of people who wanted them gone and there were these ongoing issues. Um, there had been six complaints of harassment against... A number of people um, from the community by Mamalina and Nzanga, and according to news reports these men and his this man Asofo and his group had broke into the house um, with the claim that they had the permission to be there from the chieftaincy minister so one of the higher up chiefs. Now To kind of break this down a little bit, um, even though I guess it doesn't really matter in the end because what happened happened and you can't take it back. So I looked up how land works in Ghana and there's four types of land in Ghana. There's government land, vested land, customary or stool land and family or private land. So To get government land or vested land, quote, an application must be filed with the Executive Secretary of Lands Commission or the Regional Lands Officer, depending on the location of the land. Customary land belongs to different stools in Ghana. Stools I'll get into in a minute. Who have the authority to grant the particular customary land for which they are responsible. The 1992 Constitution states that there must be no freehold interest granted in land, customary land granted to private individuals or families before the 1992 constitution is now considered private land. In this case, the buyer has to go directly to the owner of the land. A number of weeks before the women were found, Mamalina and Nzanga's two dogs, I believe they too had been poisoned and killed. And I presume that Mamalina knew exactly why, because of this ongoing dispute. Now, According to the Detro- De- the Detroit Free Press, quote, the report said that the dispute also may have been over who was authority to be chief, with others trying to say that the sisters could not legally be chiefs. But the family members in Metro Detroit say that story doesn't add up since the sisters could not be chiefs in that area because they are women, unquote. So there was a lot of Basically, the idea that people had was that these women had been wanting to be chiefs of the area, which is not possible in Ghana. It always has to be men, and that's not something you can change. So, yeah, keep that in mind. Now, that brings us to May 5th, 2015, and the women, you know, were regularly out and about doing things, and they had not been seen that morning in their community. So, their neighbours decided to hire a carpenter, A local carpenter to break into the apartment in which they live to check now according to my joy online quote a search in their room tuesday afternoon revealed blood on the floor and a bloodstained cudgel believed to have been used to hit them unquote which is basically like a club now it didn't take long for the police and local search volunteers um, to find the two women unfortunately 70 people conducted a search in the immediate area um, and they found the bodies of the two women basically buried in a shallow grave. I think it was around 300 feet from their house. It wasn't very far. Now, they didn't really know at the time, um, but I guess locals had their suspicions and most people decided that it was to do with this community disagreement related to these chieftaincy issues The Oman Hini of the Atwama traditional area, one of the local higher-ups, said that he was shocked at the murder. He said that the local people over the years had always welcomed strangers and settlers, including foreigners, onto their land without any problems. Her son, um, Mamalina's son, said, quote, some locals decided they wanted to take the land from them. My mum went to court over that and won. So she had one and they were very pissed off when she had taken it to court. He said, I guess the locals decided they were going to take matters into their own hands and they decided to abduct and murder them. His son, Greg's son James said, quote, I feel sad that someone would actually target an older woman when she's over there trying to do good for the country, which is spot on. Her son went on to say, I feel terrible about what's happened. It's a tragedy. Words kind of explain how I feel about my mum being taken from her home, murdered and put in a shallow grave 300 feet from home. I can't even imagine receiving that news when you're all the way in Detroit, hearing that, that it's just so savage. Now, a close friend of theirs, her name's Thea Simmons, um, she said when she heard the news, quote, my mind went blank, I shed some tears. It's beyond a travesty that she should lose her home in her adopted homeland. She loved Ghana and she loved the Ghanaian people. So there's not a lot out there about how they figured out who it was, but (laughs) I can guess pretty quickly. Um, Five people were very quickly arrested once the bodies were uncovered. And there is actually a photo of the bodies being uncovered. I found in places like that, they don't have any issues with publishing that. And I kind of understand that, like why there shouldn't be issues with that if you really want to hit home the gravity of how bad it is. Um, So five people were arrested. So it was a driver, a mechanic, a businessman, a surgeon's assistant, and a farmer. And there was an additional person which was a pensioner. So they pretty much rounded up all of the local people who could have had an issue with them, which (laughs) they did a pretty amazing job because I think in you know, even in America, they would have still been trying to figure this out, some of the cops. So that brings us to the, basically the arrest of a man who, <laughs> it's very confusing because he's got a couple of different names, but it's Anoyki Frimpong. And he was 24 at the time of this. Now, according to a group that had kind of set itself up and they called themselves Concerned Diasporans of Ghana. Um, They were local African-Americans who basically said that the police had done a really shit job um, and that it took such a long time to go to trial. Um, And they said justice delayed is justice denied. And I actually think it's quite quick, um, the speed. It was only a couple of years, um, but maybe they're used to something quicker. But basically in the end, a man named Anoiki Fringpong, who is not one of the initial five <laughs> arrested, was arrested. He was 24 years old. And he basically was arrested and very quickly admitted to the murders of Mamalina Mama and Nazanga. During the trial, he repeated his confession and the trial was held at the Accra, which is the capital High Court. And he had basically said what is very similar to the Michaela Macareevy case, that he's, he had broken into their house. Um, he had intended to steal from them. This was not related to the land dispute or anything like that, which it's like a red herring um, that was going on. But this man just broke in. He wanted to steal from them. Um, now, he said that Mamelina had pretty much walked in on him in the middle of the act of stealing and he had struggled with her. He'd overpowered her. He'd tied her hands together and covered her mouth with a piece of cloth. He said he left her like that and he went home. But then when he went home, he started to think that she would get free and go to the police. So he went back to the house with a club and he basically met her sister in the apartment who was coming into the apartment. And he told the court that he had hit the two women repeatedly with the club and when he had killed them, he had moved their bodies in a wheelbarrow to a nearby farm, which was the area 300 feet away. He dug a shallow grave and he would buried their bodies and it was all very haphazard because he didn't mean to kill them. After he had killed them and buried them, he went back to the house and he stole, I think it's around $3, the equivalent, maybe less, I'm not sure. Um, maybe a bit more from Mamelina's room. He then went into town and used that money to get drunk in order to forget about what he had done. Now that happened in May, 2015. And in November, 2017, the high court handed down the sentence against Anoiki Frimpong. And their sentence was death by hanging, which was a huge shock and kind of a relief to the people who had lost these two women. The judge, um, who was a woman, her name's Justice Murley Afua Wood. She, before she handed it down, she asked God to have mercy on the soul of the accused as he was about to face death. He was found guilty unanimously by a seven-person jury. Um, and it's really kind of amazing that they gave him that, because the last time Ghana actually executed someone was in 1993. They continue to kind of add people to death row, although not that many. As of September 2016, there was 137 prisoners on death row, all waiting, who hadn't been executed. Um, In 1993, it was the firing squad. He was sentenced to hanging many people in Ghana want to do away with the death penalty. Um, and I think if this had happened in any other country, he probably would have got second degree murder because it was kind of sudden, but then again, it's not because he had time to go home, think about it and return. And that means premeditation. So, you know, I don't know, maybe we can do a group trip to watch him hang. I don't really feel anything about this guy. Um, especially not when these two women were contributing to the community around them working as kind of social workers you know earning their own keep you know popular with people in their community and doing this thing kind of paving the way for other African Americans to move to Ghana and it's it's also a kind of crazy case because It's one of those cases where the people that you suspect, like the people who had had the issues who were initially arrested, are not actually the people who did it. It's just this sudden thing. And it really brought back to me the Michaela McAreevy case. You know, her walking into a hotel room and someone stealing from her and thinking the only way out of this is to kill them. You're taking like a couple of dollars and, you know, yes, you'll probably be charged and you may go to prison, but it's not murder. Um, and yeah, it just comes up again and again that it's this sudden knee-jerk reaction to cover up a petty crime you're creating, you're doing a felony. Like it's, it's insane. But that's really all I have. He sits on death row. It's only been a few years based on the fact that the last time Ghana recorded an execution of a convict was in 1993. So they keep people there pretty much for life. I am presuming that was twenty seven years ago. I'm presuming he's going to be sitting there for quite a lot long time, and I don't think that Ghana prisons are; f- it's they're not first world prisons. So you don't know if he's going to live until his execution. Um, people in Texas, you know, they're looked after, they're fed, they get you know cable TV. It's like here, they're treated like royalty studies have found that prisoners in Australia are treated better than those in nursing homes. And that's fucking disgusting. I know firsthand because I used to know someone, well, it was one of my mum's boyfriends who, when I was growing up, he was a security guard at one of our major prisons in Melbourne. And he said they got iced donuts and they worked out and it was, you know, like a social occasion for them. And it kind of makes me sick. So at least this guy sitting in a prison where it's probably hot, sweaty, no air con, (laughs) like me right now, um, you know, probably a really shitty life, but he's 24 years old and he threw his life away. He could have just put his hands up and faced the consequences of stealing. This is not a country where they cut off your hand, like in neighboring countries for stealing, but instead he's got the death penalty. He could have done his time and been out by now. And, you know, these are the choices that people make. It doesn't matter how old you are. So to wrap up, um, there was a spokesperson for the family who later said after everything was said and done that the family had never been able to get copies of the autopsy reports and that they had not been given a reason why and they weren't really even responded to. And this is kind of a common occurrence. It reminds me of Jamaica, very similar parts of South America. Um, And I don't know if to this day they were able to get copies, but this story has really been covered like on three articles. So this is everything I've got, and I've managed to flesh it out with information about Ghana. There is a GoFundMe that's still live for the family. It was to bring the women's bodies home. Um, I don't know how GoFundMe works. I think they took out the money. Um, Oh, yeah, it says they've currently disabled new donations. So they basically raised money um, for, it was Greg, um, Mamalina's son, they raised almost $7,000 to be able to bring their remains home. Um, so people gave very generously and I don't know if that was enough, but I'm presuming it was. Um, there's a photo on the GoFundMe of a group of people, but unfortunately I don't know which one's... I know which one's Mamalina, but I don't know which one's Nizanga. That makes me really sad. So if, if a family member of Mamalina or Nizanga, if Greg happens to hear this or Cheryl... Um, get in touch if you want to come on and talk about your know, mum and your auntie and um, if you want to give any details how we can kind of support the family um, that would be great and yeah so one last thing so if there's any african-americans I don't think I have many african-american listeners um I, I really don't know like most a lot of people contact me and follow me on instagram and things like that um I'm not sure, but they probably hate my voice, and I don't blame them. But if Ghana has this really cool thing where if you are from Africa originally, um, you know, back even four centuries ago, you are able to negotiate to move to Ghana, which probably seems like a really good idea at the at the moment, um, with probably the Third World War brewing whoever kicks that off first, who knows, maybe Ghana will be the place. And I'd go for sure. If you have a remote job, go live cheap. I'll be doing that in Thailand in a few years. But just this year in July, um, they were talking about how local chiefs have basically plotted out 500 acres of land near Accra, um, which is enough space for about 1500 families to move to Ghana. And they waive registration fees, surveying fees, and you're able to start a life there if you're able to kind of prove that your family came from Africa. It doesn't even have to be Ghana. The chief executive of the Ghana Tourism Authority said, quote, we want to remind our kin over there that there is a place you can escape to that is Africa, unquote. And another tourism minister said, quote, we continue to open our arms and invite all our brothers and sisters home, build a life in Ghana, unquote. And that was kind of around the time of all the riots and things like that. But that aside, it's not a bad idea, trust me, like to move to a place like that where you can buy a house for one-tenth of the cost of, oh, not even, probably one-twentieth the cost of a house in Australia, um, maybe, you know, one-tenth of the ho- cost of a house in America. It's kind of an incredible offering. And I've never heard of a country just opening up you know, to people to come home. Um, this is where their families came from originally. And this is what drew Mamalina and Nazanga back. And I think that's incredible. You know, you go through all this red tape like I did. That's a whole other story time for another time, trying to get, trying to extend my time in England. They just take your money and say, nah, fuck off. Um, and I think it's an incredible gesture that they're able to say, you were taken from this place and You have a home here. Um, And yeah, so I don't know how to take them up on that. I presume contact Ghana's tourism board or your local Ghanaian embassy in the United States. I've never done this before. So yeah, that's it. Um, I'll put up the episode page for Mamalina and Azanga in the next day or two. That's at unknownpassagepodcast.com. Become a patron of the show. I've got a $1 a month tier, a $2 a month tier, or a $5 a month tier. Um, and every tier allows you to choose a location for an upcoming episode. So I've got about four patron ones coming up. Don't worry, yours is coming. You just got to wait for your first month to go by, um, which I introduced a little while ago. So that links off the website. Otherwise, just go to the patron app and search for Unknown Passage Podcast. I think it's Patreon.com/UnknownPassagePodcast. The only social media I have is Instagram, and I'm not on that that often. I just wanted to say. I'm trying to stay off social media because the world is really fucked and it's just really stressing me out. So I'm just trying to just potter around and, yeah. So I'm not posting as much but I'm still on there. So if you send a message and I don't respond immediately, that's why. Because the world's fucked. So that's an unknown passage pod on Instagram and I've set that for private for the time being because there's a German psychopath after me. Um, So just... (laughs) just, um, just say, you know, just request and I'll confirm. Don't worry. So yeah. And next week, I think it's going to be a place of my choice because I've got Kiana coming up, Corinne coming up for Patreon requests, Mary coming up, Ruma coming up. Um, but I think it's going to be my choice for next time. So that will be a surprise and a whole new continent. So thanks. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye.